We'll be focusing on, uh, on Romans chapter 2, 1 to 5, but I'm going to, uh, to read um, down to verse 11, uh, where we really see the, the, the rest of the focus, and really the, the whole chapter all fits together, and even down to, the, to 16 and down to the other chapter, but, but I'm going to focus this morning just on verses 1 to 5, but let me read 1 to 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because, but because you store up your, your hard, sorry, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace For everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our holy and almighty God. We recognize that you are righteous and we are not. And yet, Lord, so often in our attitudes towards others, we view ourselves as the standard and and look down on other people who do not conform to our standard or our perceived standard. Yet, Lord, may we see that none of us measure up to your perfect and holy standard. Lord, free us, I pray, from judgmental hearts and from pride and self-reliance. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see clearly. Help us to see who we are before you clearly. Lord, for those who are not yet in Christ, may they see their need for Christ. May they see their guilt and their wickedness through the power of your spirit. Lord, grant them repentance and faith. Cause them to be born again. Give them new hearts, we pray. And for those, and we trust the, the vast majority who are here who are trusting in Christ, we pray that you would free us as those who have been set free from your wrath because you poured out your wrath on your son in our place. Help us, I pray, to see that we are not the standard. Lord, may we who are the recipients of your unfathomable grace and mercy be quick to extend that grace and mercy to others. For your glory, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, King David spied a beautiful woman bathing when he was up on the the palace roof. And he inquired about her and was told that her name is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah 
the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. Now Uriah was away with David's army. They were actually in battle at that moment with the Ammonites. But David sent for Bathsheba nonetheless, and he lay with her. And she conceived and sent word to David. And David realized now that that he was exposed. So in order to cover up his adultery, David had Uriah come home from the front in hopes that he would lay with Bathsheba and never find out that David was the father of her child. But Uriah, being more righteous than David, was unwilling to go home to his wife while his fellow soldiers were camping in the open field. David even tried to get Uriah drunk, but that did not work either. So David sent Uriah back to the front with a letter to, for Joab, commanding that Uriah was to go to the hottest part of the battle. And then Joab was to pull back so that Uriah would be killed. This is indeed what happened. And so David was now guilty of adultery and of murder. But then the Lord in his mercy sent Nathan the prophet to David and Nathan told David a story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many flocks, but the poor man had very little. In fact, the only thing that the poor man had was one small ewe lamb, which he fed and watered from his own hand and the the lamb drank from his own cup. This ewe lamb was precious to the poor man. But when when a traveler came to the rich man, the rich man was unwilling to slaughter an animal from his own flock to feed his guests. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. When David heard this story from Nathan, his anger was greatly kindled. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan replied to David, you are the man. David condemned the rich man for taking and killing the poor man's lamb, but David had done the same thing, only infinitely worse. He took Uriah's wife and then killed Uriah. Now, thankfully, David repented, and we have Psalm 51 as a wonderful testimony of David's repentance. But the disastrous consequences of David's sin affected his family for generations. Friends, Paul's comments in Romans 1 and 2 run parallel to those of Nathan the prophet. After addressing the sin that many Gentiles were guilty of in Romans 1, 18 and following, Paul sets his sights on hypocritical Jews who condemned the sins of the Gentiles for sins which they, the Jews, were committing as well. And so if, if they were to have, to have read Romans 1, 18 and following, they would have been nodding their heads vigorously at the wickedness of the Gentiles. But then Paul turned to address them in chapter 2. Paul is saying, the Gentile believers are sinners guilty before the Holy God. And the Jewish unbelievers also are sinners guilty before the holy God. 
Their ethnicity could not save them. Their lineage through Abraham could not save them. Their sin would condemn them just as the sin of the Gentiles condemned them. Jewish and Gentile unbelievers are both headed to hell together. But Jewish and Gentile believers are both headed to heaven together. And that's really the focus of what, of what Paul is, is saying, what he wants to get to in, in Romans. And, but before he gets to that good news, again, he's spending two whole chapters from, from Romans 1.18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, talking about the bad news. The condemnation that Jew and Gentile are together under before the holy God, all of those Jew and Gentile who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And only then, after, after laboriously communicating the, the badness of the bad news, only then will Paul go on with chapter 3, 21, to the end of the book, talking about the, the unity of, of Jew and Gentile in Christ. There was one way of salvation for Jew and for Gentile. Everything else, every other way, is a way of damnation for everyone else. So again, Paul is dealing with the bad news before he turns to proclaim the good news. And the badness of the bad news makes the goodness of the good news that much more wonderful. The revealing of the wrath of God reveals the grace and the mercy of the gospel. And again, the bad news here is the wrath of God. And Paul has just described that, the wrath of God presently upon Gentiles in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. He explained the wrath of God that is there now, is present now on unbelieving Gentiles. The way that God has given them over to their unrighteous desires because they have rejected him. Even though they know he exists, they have rejected him and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But now in, in chapter 2, Paul launches into a diatribe against the Jews, explaining that the wrath of God is on them too. The wrath of God is bad news for unbelieving Gentiles and unbelieving Jews. And the bad news here in chapter 2 is even worse than the bad news from chapter 1. And the bad news here is even worse for two reasons. First of all, because of the Jews' knowledge of God's word. That they have more than just natural revelation. That they see God not just from creation, but they see God from his word. And I believe that the the Jews particularly that are in view here are are the the Jews who knew about Christ. The Jews in Paul's day who have have actively, actively rejected Christ. They denied him and the ones who shouted, crucify him. The Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. They knew that the scriptures pointed to the Messiah. But when the Messiah came, they rejected the Messiah and handed him over to the Gentiles to be killed. They even called down a curse upon themselves, saying, may this be upon, may his blood be upon our heads and upon the heads of our children. So that's the first way the bad news is worse news. 
But the bad news is even worse also because Paul is not just describing here temporal judgment, he's describing eternal judgment. Paul here in chapter 2 is not just describing the wrath of God on unbelievers today, he's describing the wrath of God that we poured out on unbelievers forever. The wrath of God on, on unbelievers that is present now, that they're experiencing now, is a drop in the ocean compared to his wrath that we poured out upon them in hell forever and ever and ever. And even in the wrath of God that is experienced by unbelievers today, that there is hope. Right? We, we know unbelievers who are, or were walking in Romans 1, 18 to 32. In fact, to a degree, every unbeliever you know is walking in Romans 1, 18 to 32. But there's hope there. Because as we talked about last week, there's hope that, that somehow that they will begin to see as they see the, the temporal consequences of their sin, that they'll begin to see their wickedness. They'll begin to see that they need a savior and that they will turn to, and find that that savior is in G, is indeed Jesus Christ. But for those who die in their sin, there is no more hope. All that awaits them is final judgment. And when the day of judgment comes, it will catch many unawares. On judgment day, the day of wrath that Paul speaks of here in chapter 2, the wrath of God will be poured out on all unbelievers, Jew and Gentile alike, for all eternity. And this is what we're really going to be seeing for, for the, the next few Sundays, what we're dealing and focusing here specifically on verses 1 to 5. I have three main points. Verses 1 to 3, man's unrighteous judgment. Verse 4, man's stubborn presumption. And verse 5, God's righteous judgment. So we're seeing here God's righteous judgment revealed on those who hypocritically judge others for sins that they themselves practice. So first of all, verses 1 to 3, man's unrighteous judgment. Verse 1 starts with, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And remember, when you see the word therefore in your Bible, you need to know what it's there for. You need to look at the previous passage in order to see how this relates to the previous point. You need to see it in its context. And so here, the, the chapter break is, is helpful, but, but sometimes the, the chapter break can actually cloud the context of the passage. We need to be careful not, not to let that happen here. Paul has just said in verses, in, in verse, verses one, in chapter one, 18 to 32, that the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth of God. Again, they have no excuse when God's wrath is revealed against them because they know that God exists and that yet they refuse to worship Him. God has revealed His eternal power and His divine nature to all people in creation, but they deny Him and choose to worship what is created instead. So God gives them over to their sinful desires. So who is the O man that Paul refers to here? He's referring to the Jews. To the Jews. And we can see that more in the context later on. But clearly here in this passage, Paul is referring to the Jews. 
Now, one of the characteristics, I said this is a diatribe, one of the, the characteristics of a diatribe in ancient literature is a, a dialogue with a, a metaphorical individual who represents the larger group. And so here it's, it's not just, oh man, but woe man too. Often, as we're going to see, that the character that is being presented will be used as a foil to anticipate objections to the argument. And, and Paul does this very, very well. You see this quite a bit in, in his, in his, as he pr- progresses his argument in Romans. <clears throat> and so again, the, the man here represents the Jews, male and female alike. Paul is going to use this term again in verse 2. And Calvin is probably correct in seeing Paul's response, or rather Paul's purpose in using this term is, is to, oh man, is to present a comparison between man and God. As in, who do you think you are, mere man? The judgment of God is righteous and your judgment is self-righteous. The judgment of God is perfectly right and yours is sinfully wrong. So as, as the focus for, of Paul was in chapter 1 was on Gentiles, the, the first two sins that Paul mentioned, the flagrant idolatry and perverse immorality were pervasive in ancient society. But Paul then, in chapter 1, remember, included an extensive list of sins. And that list was, did not just include the, 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 more, the more obvious sins of idolatry and sexual immorality that were epidemic in, in Rome, but a host of other sins that are epidemic in every culture. People's hearts they had become so hardened that they not only committed those sins, but condemned, or rather, but commended others who commit those sins. That they saw that the wickedness, the, the high-handed wickedness around them, and they gave each other pats on the back saying, good for you, you go for it. Which we saw last week is, is even worse than doing the sin yourselves. Because like you're shoving the other person into hell. But with chapter 2 then, as Paul turns to deal with the Jews, he's dealing with those who, who do not commend those sins. Rather, they condemn those sins. But the problem is, they don't condemn those sins in themselves. They merely condemn those sins in others. They don't condemn those sins, but they commit those sins. And so their, their, their sins, and this earned them a, a double condemnation. Condemnation for their judgment and condemnation for their own practice of sin. Now, now the verb here, translated practice, can, can, it communicates an ongoing habitual behavior. Right? We recognize that, that no one is sinless. 1 John 1 8 says, If anyone says we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But in 1 John 3 7 and 8, 
John says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he, as he is righteous, and whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So again, the, 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 the principle here is, is someone whose life is, is characterized by, by these particular sins. Such people, Paul says, have no excuse. They have no excuse because they're demonstrating that they know that their behavior is sinful. They know that it's wrong and deserves God's judgment because they're condemning those very things in other people. Again, they didn't just know this was wrong from general revelation. They knew it from special revelation. They knew it from God's word. Back in 132 again, Paul exclaimed that even Gentiles who did not know the word of God knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such sins deserve to die. But the Jews again knew it more directly. They knew it from the scriptures. They're instructed from the law, chapter 218. They're entrusted with the oracles of God, chapter 3, verse 2. And so through the scriptures, the, Jew, the Jews knew that the judgment of God rightly follow, falls on those who practice such things. Now it's translated here in the ESV again that they knew the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But, but here the, the King James is, is actually better. The word that's translated rightly is actually better translated truth. The King James says that we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And so this would mean not just that God is right or just in condemning them, but that his condemnation is according to the facts of their case. He's judging them, as Rob Ventura says, according to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So then in verse 3, Paul asks the question uh, again of his metaphorical opponent. Again, referring to, oh man, woman, he's talking to you as well. Do you suppose, oh man, that you will judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Follow Paul's argument here. You are without excuse, hypocritical judge, because you condemn others for sins you commit. You know that God will condemn those who practice such things. You have, you who have the scriptures know it better than anyone else. You know that God is just. You know that no one who practices sin will escape the judgment of God. And you know that God knows the truth about you. And so you know that you are under God's judgment for practicing these sins while hypocritically judging others for the sins you commit. Do you feel the weight of this? It's like Paul's heaping layer upon layer upon layer of the guilt that, that again, first the Gentiles and now the Jews are under as well. The, The just condemnation of the holy God. The wrath of God that is not just experienced temporally, not just experienced in, in a giving over to the, the, the folly and the wickedness of, 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 of human hearts, but the, 
the, the, the wrath of God that is experienced and will be, will be fully poured out on the day of judgment. But then thankfully, Paul shifts gears a little in verse 4. In the middle of the discussion of the wrath of God and the judgment of God, Paul now interjects with the, the, and speaks of the riches of God's kindness and God's forbearance and God's patience. It, it's, it's a breath of fresh air before the next wave comes crashing over our heads. Just, just saying those words, the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience feels like a breath of fresh air. God's kindness, the, the riches of God's kindness. This is experienced by believer and unbeliever alike as, as God provides everything that we need. Just, I, I often marvel, just, especially I'm, I'm pining for summer now, just taking a bite of a, of a peach. I think, my God invented that. He invented the, the wonderful flavor of a peach and then, and then a cherry. Come summer. It's not even really winter yet. But I think my God made these things. He made these things for us to enjoy. When I look at, at the face of my wife and at the face of my children. and say, God, God gave me these things to enjoy. This is his kindness. And this is the kindness that not just believers experience. This is the kindness that, that all people experience. That God causes the, the sun to shine and the, the rain to fall on the righteous and, and, and on the wicked at a... This is, this, is, this is the wonder of God's kindness. And then God's forbearance. Again, this is something experienced by believer and, and unbeliever alike. God endures our, our wickedness and our, our weakness and our rebellion. And God's patience. The first act of sin, God, and the first act of sin when, when, when each one of us was an infant would have earned God. If God was to, to smite us with lightning and cast us into hell immediately, that's what we would deserve. Yet every day of our lives, we, we heap up guilt upon ourselves, and yet God is patient with us. Again, this is experienced by believer and unbeliever alike. And the Jews who are in view here, as a culture, they'd experienced the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience for millennia. But the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience was being experienced by the Jews in Paul's day as well. And so just as for us here as Christians, speaking of, of God's, the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience is a breath of fresh air before the, the next wave comes. For the unbelieving Jew, it is another wave that pushes them under because they are presuming upon these things. They know these things. They know these things from experience. They know these things from God's word. And yet they Presume upon them. They, when, when God has given them his patience and kindness and forbearance, instead of, instead of turning to God in repentance and faith, they, they harden their hearts in recalcitrant, recalcitrant sin. 
Ecclesiastes 11. Because the sentence against an evil is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because they get away with it for a while, they become more bold in their rebellion against God. But again, returning to this for a moment, we experience God's kindness and God's forbearance and God's patience. We as Christians experience them infinitely more than, than any unbeliever could possibly know. Because we experience the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience in its fullness in Jesus Christ. in the sinless Lamb of God who died in our place, who drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for us and gives us not just an empty cup, but gives us a cup that is overflowing with his blessings. But returning now to the unbelievers, Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness, or God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is kind of a, a, an oxymoron, isn't it? This, this idea of storing up wrath. And we're told to, to lay up treasures not on earth, but to lay up treasures. In heaven. But the people that Paul is speaking to here, these unbelieving Jews, are storing up wrath like a miser stores up money. They're storing it up for judgment. Again, they knew that God could not overlook any sin. God may be patient, but he is not unjust. And in his justice, he must punish sin. Now, we need to be careful here as well. In Hebrews 3.12, the writer warns us. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And he's, he's speaking here of, uh, of those who, who appear to be Christians, appear to be with Christ, but in the reality of their lives, they do not have a new heart. They've not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The, the, the changes in their lives are, are merely external. They're, 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 they don't have true trust in Christ alone. But instead, they still have an evil, unbelieving heart. And so may we be on guard. May we take care that that does not apply to us. But the Jews who were exhibiting this hypocritical judgment, who were condemning others for the sins that they themselves were committing, they were showing that unless they repented on the day of God's wrath, there would be testimony of God's righteous judgment, of how much God hates sin as he poured out the fullness of his wrath that they would experience for all eternity. And the Pharisees made 
a career of this kind of hypocritical judgment. They added to the word of God. Not only did they create laws in a vain attempt to protect themselves from disobeying the law, but they created laws as a workaround in order to allow them to disobey the law. For example, they, they created 39 categories of Sabbath, Sabbath laws and hundreds of subcategories, but they neglected to obey the positive Sabbath commands, being unwilling to do good to another man on the Sabbath. And they even criticized Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. They condemned the Lord who created the law, accusing him of being a lawbreaker. And they did this not just at the one point of the Decalogue, they did it at every point of the Ten Commandments. But it wasn't just the Pharisees. This was typical and characteristic of of unbelievers in Jewish culture. They viewed themselves as the favored people of God, and they were the favored people of God, as we'll see explicitly at the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. But in their focus on being children of Abraham, in their focus on their circumcision, in their focus of being recipients of the old covenant, they rejected the new covenant in Christ. They rejected Christ. And so the unbelieving Jews rejected unbelieving Gentiles who they saw as rejected by God and condemned them for their wickedness. However, they themselves rejected God incarnate and condemned themselves in their wickedness. In their self-righteous judgmentalism, they were doubly condemned for their sinful judgment and for their sin. Many of you are familiar with Paul Washer and the, the sermon that, that is entitled The Shocking Youth Message. And if you have not watched that, I, I commend it to you. And, and it's, it's a, quite an old sermon, but, but really I would recommend you, you go back and you, you listen to it. And Paul Washer in that sermon is, is speaking to a youth conference. He's speaking to, to those and he's saying that Many who profess Jesus will spend eternity in hell. He explained that so many young people are deceived when they they look like the world, they talk like the world, they walk like the world. He says the point of Christianity is not to be like the world, but to be like Jesus Christ. And then comes the poignant moment in the sermon where the audience clapped. They applauded. And Paul Washer stopped and said, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. The auditorium went silent. You could have heard a pin drop. And he, as he was speaking, he was, always, was being overcome with emotion. He wasn't saying this out of, out of self-righteous judgment. He was, was weeping for these Young people who professed Christ, but by their attitude and lifestyle looked more like the world than they looked like Jesus Christ.
I don't know how judgmental you are, but I know how judgmental I can be. And if I'm honest with myself, I know I can often say to myself, when it comes to self-righteous judgment, you are the man. I remember years ago when I first moved to Toronto, we, we lived across from, from a park and, and this park was, was full of, of addicts and, and mostly crack addicts. And I remember in my heart, judging these men and women in their sin. In my heart, condemning them for their wickedness. And then it hit me. I was a hair's breadth from that very lifestyle. I've smoked crack. That could have been me. And but for the grace of God, that would have been me. And here I was self-righteously in my ivory tower looking down on people that were doing the very same thing that I had done. And it was only by the grace of God that I'd been rescued from that. Who did I think I was? But if we're honest with ourselves, that's all of us at times. Are you frustrated with the slow rate at which the people around you seem to be growing? Brothers and sisters, your frustration reveals an even more heinous sin in in your heart than theirs. It's your self-righteous pride. That somebody's not growing according to your timetable. You are not the Holy Spirit. That person you are judging is not your servant. They are God's servant. You have no place. I have no place to judge another person for their sin. Brothers and sisters, humility is so focused on your own sin. They didn't have time to deal with the sin of others. Humility sees yourself as the biggest sinner in the room. Humility recognizes the fact that you deserve God's wrath. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, famously, or some would say infamously, said the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow is made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation of at all at all that keeps that arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. That is what you and I deserve. So we miss the application here if we limit this to unbelieving Jews. 
It is not just unbelieving Jews who are capable of self-righteous judgmentalism. Again, even though the main point here is, is hypocritical judgment from unbelieving Jews, believing Jews were capable of the same self-righteous judgmentalism as well. We saw that repeatedly in Acts. With the division that was taking place between Jew and Gentile over matters of serial, ceremonial law and uh, things that were adiaphora, things that are indifferent, matters of personal opinion. And Paul is going to deal with these issues directly in Romans 14 and 15. And it's not just believing Jews who are capable of self-righteous judgmentalism. Believing Christians are capable of self-righteous judgmentalism as well. You and I are capable of self-righteous judgmentalism. In fact, living as we do as, as Gentiles in a predominantly Gentile era of the church, we can see ourselves as the elect, as those who are predominantly a privileged people, much like first century Jews. The tables here have turned. Paul is going to address this directly in Romans 11 as he describes Gentiles who have been engrafted are boasting against Jews who are the natural branches. We can see ourselves as the privileged ones because we don't just have the 39 books of the Old Testament, we have the 27 books of the New Testament as well. But just like the Jews were tempted to rely on things that were unable to save them, we could be tempted to rely on things that are incapable of saving us as well. We can rely on our Baptist heritage, on our church membership, on our baptism, on our doctrine, on the faith of our parents, and so on. We can look down our noses on others who do not have these things. We can put our confidence and our pride on all kinds of things besides Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are the recipients of God's grace and God's mercy in Christ, and not because of any of those things. Because of Christ alone. And as those who received grace and mercy from God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should be the most gracious and merciful people on the planet. We should be the least judgmental people on the planet. But we have to admit that, that many of us tend to be very judgmental, at least with regards to certain sins. I said a moment ago that, that, that humility means being so focused on your own sins that you don't have time to deal with the sin of others to focus on theirs. And Paul's preparing here for the good news. And I'm, I, I'm not going to wait till we get to chapter 321 to, to proclaim the good news. Let's not stop at focusing our sin, on our sins. Look to Christ. As Robert Murray McShane says, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. May, yes, may we strive against sin, but, 
But may the awareness of the sin in our lives make us that much more aware of the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ in our lives. You need to preach the gospel to yourself daily. But don't just preach the gospel to yourself about yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself about others as well daily. Because your brothers and sisters of Christ are saved by Christ in exactly the same way that you are saved by Christ. To the extent that you're aware of sin in your Christian brothers' and sisters' lives, train yourself to be far more aware of the fact that Christ died for their sins every bit as much as he died for yours. Like I said to the kids, you're, you're probably patient with yourself and your sanctification. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, exercise that same patience for the sanctification of your brothers and your sisters as well. Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of your faith and of theirs as well. So as we prepare our hearts to, to eat and drink uh, from the, the Lord's table, Again, I, I would, would, I would love to, to see us be able to do this all. We'll figure out a way. We did this when, when the pews were all out, when we were refurbishing, to, to, to sit in a circle and to eat and drink looking at each other's faces. Again, this, this bread and this cup is not, is not for you just individually. It's, it's not just, just you and God. It's us together and God. It's the blood of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ for all of our sins, past, present, and future. So, and just seeing, again, we focus on ourselves in this, but, but think communally. This is called communion. Not just communion again between you and God, but us and God. And so look at the back of the head, or look even better, look around. You see that person's arm go up to put that bread or that, that, that cup in their mouth. That person, like you, is remembering the Lord's death until he comes. And one day, one day we're going to eat and drink together around the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then together, all of us are going to be looking at the head of the table. At the Lamb of God who is crucified for our sins. May the Lord help us to see everything, to see ourselves and to see each other through the love of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ for his glory in the church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the great salvation that we have in you. Lord, may our hearts be so filled with the wonder of your grace and mercy. As you died in our place, as our guilt was imputed to you, as you lived in our place so that your righteousness is imputed to us. 
Help us, I pray, to see not just ourselves in light of that, but see, to see each other in light of that. May the gospel inform all of our relationships. And may we be so full of thoughts of the gospel that, that we proclaim Christ. We don't just sit back and, and judge those who are unbelievers who are still in the, the depths of, the sin, of their sin, but may we remember that that once was us. And may we be vessels of your mercy and grace and love as we proclaim to them the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.